Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In fact, we're going to be looking at three portions of Scripture this morning. Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Exodus 15. And Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 15. We'll not be reading all three now. We'll just be reading the first which is Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the child went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. As to whether Miriam bore children, we have no way of knowing. Because scripture does not tell us whether or not she actually bore children. But one thing we do know, and we know for sure, is that she functioned as a mother, as a matriarch, a true matriarch in Israel. Who was this woman, Miriam? We'll be looking at her. We know she was from a very influential family. There in Israel, because she was from a Levitical family, the Levites, as you know, were responsible for administrating the worship of God. Miriam, we understand from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and 7, or rather Exodus chapter 2, verses 4 and 7, as well as Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20, was the older sister of Moses and possibly the older sister of of Aaron. And as you know, these two men were influential in leading Israel to freedom from Egyptian slavery. And being the sister of Moses and Aaron meant that she was the daughter of the Levitical couple Amram and Jochebed, as we learn from Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, as well as Exodus chapter 6 and verse 20. Miriam is one of two women 
who is so named in Scripture, the other being a daughter of Merid of the tribe of Judah. We learned that from 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 17. According to older Jewish tradition, her name, the name Miriam, means bitterness. However, modern lexicographers suggest that her name derives from the Hebrew word Mara, which means plump, or from the Egyptian word Mer, which means love. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 8, the Hebrew word we find there that's used for girl in reference to Miriam signifies it's a word that was often used in connection with a woman of marriageable age, usually around 13 years of age, which would suggest that Miriam may have been more than a decade older than Moses. She, we would say, was Moses' big sister. So let's talk about Miriam this morning, and we look at her significance in Scripture. What is her significance in Scripture? Mary, or rather Miriam, actually the word Mary also derives from Miriam, Miriam figures prominently in at least three incidents in Scripture. In the first incident recorded here in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, she appears unnamed in her role as the protective big sister of Moses. You know the historical background. The Pharaoh, which was a different Pharaoh from that Pharaoh in the days of Joseph, he saw that the population of Israel was growing at an alarming rate. He realized that not only were they growing at an alarming rate, but they were very influential, and he was concerned that in time that would spell trouble for the land of Egypt. So in order to drastically reduce the Israelite population, he decided to not only afflict the people with rigorous slavery, but to order the killing of all the male babies, all the babies. And it was at this time we understand that Moses was born. Exodus chapter 2 verse 2 tells us that when his mother gave birth to him, seeing that he was a fine child, a handsome, cute little baby, she hid him for three months. And when she could no longer hide him, and you can imagine why, because a growing little baby is going to make noise, okay? What she decided to do, she placed him in a little basket among the reeds by the river Nile. And Miriam, Miriam, the one we're considering this morning, the girl we're considering this morning, was charged with the responsibility of watching the basket with little baby brother Moses. We're told in Exodus chapter 2, verse 4, that she stood at a distance to know, that is to see, what would become of him. Let's begin to make some observations. Right away we can begin to at least draw some inferences from this girl, Miriam. From all indications, we could say this, that Miriam was an obedient, helpful, and reliable daughter. 
The assumption being that her mother had instructed her to do what she was doing, namely to stand by the Nile, to stay at a distance, to observe what would become of little baby Moses. If it was not her mother who had instructed her to do that, then it's very much possible that she may have been the one to have suggested the idea to which her mother, mother readily agreed. In any event, what is most certain is this, that Miriam was helpful to her mother. Her mother could depend on her to undertake a task that was very sensitive, perhaps very risky. And certainly we can deduce here that as a big sister, Miriam was protective of her baby brother. Instinctively, she knew that they were of the same blood. She knew that there was a real connection with this little baby. This was her blood brother. Instinctively, her sense of compassion and care came into play as she, as she watched over this, her little brother. And by way of application, much could be said, I believe, to older children with younger siblings. And let me say to you youngsters, as an older child or even young person, with little brothers and sisters, it's a good thing, it's a good thing to help your mom when she requests help with your little brother or sister. When asked to watch over your smallest sibling, don't shrug off the instruction as though it's not really your responsibility. Don't sulk because you had something to do, because you had some video game to play, or you're going to see some friend or some friend was going to come over. It's very much your responsibility to begin with to obey your parents, to obey mom when she asks help with your brother, with your sister. It's very much your responsibility to exercise care, to exercise responsibility, to exercise care for your sibling. Let me say this, that that is most pleasing in the eyes of God. And think of the benefits, think of the benefits that you as a child, as a young person, are deriving even from an activity like that. Let me say that in helping to look after your sibling, your, your brother, your sister, what you're actually doing, you see, you're building character. You're building character by that act, seemingly insignificant as it might appear. As you help in this area, you're learning what it is to be faithful, you're learning what it is to be reliable, you're learning something of what it means to be responsible, of what it means to be caring, you're learning something of what it means to be a leader. In fact, you're learning something of what it means to be selfless. You're learning something of what it means to put others first and your needs last. Miriam was the kind of girl who was not only supportive of her mother, but was protective of her little brother, Moses. What a beautiful picture we have there of a little girl with a little brother. 
But there's something else that's suggested here in Exodus 2 about Miriam, and that is Miriam evidently was a girl who was very smart, a girl who was very shrewd, a girl who was very much quick-witted. And if you look at the account, when she saw Pharaoh's daughter coming down to the river, and of course she would, uh, the assumption being, this was a regular thing that, Mir- that Pharaoh's daughter would do, uh, Miriam, we're told, was standing as a, at a distance, and as soon as she saw Pharaoh's daughter, she approached her with this question, offering to help her to find a nurse for the child. You want me to go and look for a nurse for the child, for you? And of course, Pharaoh's daughter readily agreed to this, upon which Miriam brought her mother jockey bed to the princess. And so in the end, you know the story, jockey bed, the mother, was paid to look after her own child. And the wonderful thing we notice here, here comes Miriam, the wonderful thing we see here is that Miriam had a hand in all this. She, by God's grace and providence, played a part in the protection, in the preservation of this baby Moses who grew up to be a great leader in Israel. And so as one writer states, quote, her faithfulness and resourcefulness made her a key figure in shaping Moses' life. And that's who this young girl Miriam was. We learned their fantastic lesson concerning what it means to be faithful, even as a child, with regard to parental um, instructions, with regard to duties, chores as a child, even as simple a matter as looking after your sibling, your younger sibling. The second incident in which Miriam figured in Scripture is recorded in Exodus chapter 15, Exodus 15 where she is presented in her capacity as a praise and worship leader in Israel. She started off as a protective big sister, faithful in the task of looking after her little brother, and the next time we meet with her, she is presented in Exodus 15 as a praise and worship leader in Israel. Well, let's consider, first of all, her role as a leader in Israel. It's significant to note that whereas Moses was the prime leader, the divinely appointed leader, the one appointed by God to lead Israel, God cites Miriam, and this is something that is not well known, I imagine, by the average person. God cites Miriam as having played a leadership role alongside Moses, alongside Aaron, in leading Israel out from Egyptian bondage. Many times we think of the leader as Moses. Yes, he was the prime leader, but how often do we think of the role Miriam played in that epic event? And we find this in Micah chapter 6 and verse 4. Micah 6 verse 4, where in chiding Israel for their waywardness, in chiding Israel For their rebellion, their idolatrous ways, God reminded them. Here's what God reminded them of. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, 
and Miriam. And with this in mind, we can appreciate then Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, which finds her leading the women of Israel in praise to the Lord. It is here in Exodus chapter 15 that she is mentioned by name for the very first time. The occasion marked God's mighty deliverance of Egypt from, from, of Israel from Egyptian bondage. You know the account that when they departed Egypt, Pharaoh and his host went after them in pursuit of them. Israel at this time was in the middle of the sea. They were crossing the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his host, his 600 chariots, his over 600 chariots, ventured to go after them in the sea. And what happened? God caused the sea to engulf them so that they perished. Israel was wonderfully saved. And we see there, my friends, at that time, in celebration of this momentous event, Moses, we are told, and the people of Israel, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, rehearsed in song the various attributes of the Lord that were at work in Israel's deliverance. When you have some time, read Exodus chapter 15, that song that Moses and the people sang in celebration to God for that magnificent victory he had won for the people of Israel in delivering them from Egypt and in destroying Pharaoh and his hosts. And after what appeared to have been an extensive time of worship being led there by Moses, enters Miriam in verses 20 and 21. And there in Exodus chapter 15 verses 20 to 21, we find that not only is she identified by name for the first time, but there she is referred to as a prophetess. In fact, she has the distinction of being the first woman in scripture, to be identified as such. The question is, who is a prophet? A prophet, we know, is a mouthpiece for God, is a spokesperson for God. In the Old Testament, the prophets functioned as spokespersons for God, delivering messages that bore the stamp of divine authority. And whereas Moses was the the prophet at that time, the primary prophet at that time, his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam were also recognized as prophets in their own right. They evidently exercised a prophetic role. Now, right away, those who advocate female leadership in the church, the idea of women being pastors and preachers of the word of God will readily cite Miriam as proof that God sanctions women serving in the church as preachers, as pastors, and so on and so forth. But to come away with that conclusion, I would say, is to wrongly handle the word of truth, the scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. To advocate the idea of women in the church leading and preaching to a congregation is to fail to understand that the revealed will of God, or rather to, it is to fail to understand that God revealed his will in successive stages throughout redemptive history. What that means is this. We have to be careful that we do not go to a certain 
part of redemptive history, take what was not really prescribed, but was what that was merely being described, and to use that as a basis for doctrine. As regards God's will for leadership in the church, the New Testament is very clear that men are to take the lead. Paul specifically states in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, for example, that men are to lead in congregational prayer. Men are to lead in congregational prayer. That's why we don't ask women to lead in prayer. And we have a scriptural basis for that. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 for men is the gender-specific word, andras, as distinct from anthropos, which generally refers to male and female. Paul does not use the generic word men, referring to men and women. He uses the gender-specific word andras, which means man as male. And not only that, but you notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul goes on to state in that very chapter He says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not, he says, permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, notice something there, very, very, very important. You'll notice there that based on verses 13 and 14, if you'll just glance at verses 13 and 14 for a minute, a legitimate argument cannot, a legitimate argument cannot be made that Paul was merely appealing to the cultural norms of his day. There are people who take that passage and they say, well, in those days, it's being a patriarchal society. Understandably, women were on the fringes, on the margins, therefore Paul was adapting to the culture. Why is that not correct? Look at what Paul does. Paul, notice there, bases his prohibition of female preachers in the congregation on two factors. One, on the divinely created order, and two, on the nature of the fall. In the first place, he premises his prohibition on the fact that Adam was formed first and then Eve. In the second place, he grounds his prohibition of women teaching in the congregation on the fact that the woman and not the man was deceived in the Garden of Eden. So what Paul does there, Paul appeals to two biblical historical truths. One, the fall, and two, the creation order. Paul says on the basis of that, I do not permit a woman to teach in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. Here's the point. Can women teach the word of God? I've always said this. Yes. In scripture, there are gifts, and the gift of teaching is not does not exclude women. The difference only, only difference is this. They cannot teach the word of God to a mixed congregation. They cannot teach the word of God in public worship. They cannot preach the word of God in the presence of men. And it's not because God is into the male chauvinism business. It is because simply that he has established certain order which he wants for us. He wants for his church to follow 
I don't think I'd just go into that side note only because some probably would say, well, see, Miriam was a prophetess. Why are we holding back women? Why are we not pro-women? By the way, let me say this. It's interesting to note, and here's something else. It's interesting to note that even though Miriam was recognized as a prophetess, and as one who led in worship. Watch this. If you look at verses 20 and 21 of Exodus chapter 15, notice there, she is seen leading not the entire congregation of Israel, but specifically who? The women of Israel. Do you see that? Moses, in verses 1 through 19, is leading the congregation of Israel in worship. But when it comes to Miriam, Miriam the prophetess, the spokesperson for God, is ministering specifically to women, and she rallies the women and calls the women to worship God. God is a God of order. We read in Exodus chapter 15, 20, 21, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In fact, we have there this song of hers being one of the oldest songs to be found in Scripture. And in this song, she calls attention, notice, to the majesty and effortless power of God, whereby he defeats, he destroys his enemies. And suggested by this song is that as a woman of spiritual insight, Miriam saw the hand of God in Israel's deliverance out of Egyptian bondage. She did not see it merely as an accident of history. She saw it as a direct work of the power of God. These verses, Exodus chapter 15, verses 20, 21, portrays Miriam as a woman of worship. These verses portray her as a woman with a heart for the Lord, and with a heart for the Lord, notice she intensely, passionately worshipped and praised God. You see there that with a heart bubbling with praise to God, with gratitude to God, Miriam, in her enthusiasm, she rallies these women, and right off the bat, these women follow her in praising and worshiping God. Miriam was quite a leader. She spontaneously reached for her musical instrument, her tambourine, inspiring the women to join her in celebratory praise to the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean now next week somebody, somebody later is going to come and say, can I rip the tambourine and do that, do this, do that. Like that song of her brother Moses in Exodus chapter 15, 1 through 19, hers was a song that featured the Lord alone. The focus of her song, notice, was not on Moses. As brilliant as Moses was, as impressive as Moses was in leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, it was not on her brother Aaron. It was not even on herself. Her focus in this song was on worshiping and praising the Lord and the Lord alone. 
So in the book of Exodus, we see Miriam in her role as a protective sibling of her baby brother Moses. We see her in her role as a prophetess and as the enthusiastic praise and worship leader of the women of Israel. Now the third incident in which Miriam appears in Scripture is recorded in Numbers 12, 1 through 15. Numbers 12, 1 through 15. And unlike her previous two appearances in Scripture here, in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 15, she's not at all presented in a positive light. In Exodus 15, her song and her singing were the focal point of attention. Here in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 15, that which claims her attention and in the most solemn manner is her sin, her sin. After they had left Sinai, there was a growing spirit of discontent among the people of Israel. You know the account. You have read of Israel's murmuring in the wilderness. You have heard of their grumblings, their murmurings. The people, we learn in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, kept complaining about their misfortunes. From time to time, they would grumble against Moses on account of the hardships they were experiencing in the wilderness. In one instance, they complained about not having water to drink. In another instance, they complained to Moses about having to eat again and again and again the same food over and over and over. And somewhere in the mix, the spirit of discontent against Moses came upon, of all people, who, guess who? Miriam and Aaron. And it appears that Miriam was the instigator of this disgruntlement with Moses. At least two things, if you, in fact, let's read the portion in Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. She was evidently the instigator, the one who incited this spirit of discontent, dragging her brother along. And we're told there in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married for he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, two things are suggested as to why she was the ringleader. One is that her name, you'll notice, is mentioned first in the text. Scripture has a way of, say, mentioning the eldest sibling first of mentioning, as in the case of Peter, the chief spokesperson of the disciples first. Peter is usually mentioned before James and John. And here, the assumption is, because her name appears first in the text, she was the one who instigated this rebellion against Moses. And a second suggestion as to why she was the instigator, you'll notice as we look further into to the account, is that unlike Aaron, who was only reprimanded by God, Miriam 
suffered severely. She was severely punished. Now we have no idea as to how long Miriam and Aaron had been nursing this bitter spirit toward Moses. It may have been for days. It may have been for weeks, perhaps months. Suffice it to say that those seemingly, seemingly innocent, the question they proposed had undertones of insinuation, implicating Moses as a self-exalting leader. We read, in, as we just read in, that, in, in verse 2, they proposed this question to Moses, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And according to verse 1, it began with their annoyance at Moses for having married a Cushite or Ethiopian woman. This was an insidious move on their part, uh, especially Miriam, because by speaking out against his wife and against Moses, by speaking out against this woman, this Cushite, this Ethiopian, this foreigner, this non-Israelite, what they were attempting to do was to rile up support of their fellow Israelites by appealing to their prejudice. Moses, as we know, had a wife by the name of Zipporah. Zipporah, who may have died, there are some Bible scholars who believe that this woman, Zipporah, is actually the same Cushite woman. Miriam evidently misunderstood God's prohibition, it seems, uh, misunderstood God's prohibition of Israel intermarrying foreign women from the land of Canaan. You'll notice that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 15 through 16, as applying to all foreign marriages. Or it may have been that she willfully sought to misrepresent what God had actually said so as to incite the people's prejudice against Moses and his Cushite wife. As one commentator notes, Miriam pointed to Moses' marriage to the Cushite woman as a reason not to trust his leadership. Now, apparently, apparently, the issue Miriam and Aaron had with Moses was way deeper than his marriage to the Cushite woman. His marriage to the Cushite woman was merely a pretext for something of a greater concern to Miriam and Aaron. Theirs was a fundamental problem of what? Envy. Envy. Envy of Moses as the prime divinely recognized leader, as the prime divinely appointed leader of Israel. Evidently what greatly peeved and embittered Miriam and Aaron uh, was the fact that they were not getting the kind of attention they thought they deserved. Here was Miriam a prophetess. Aaron, of course, was high priest. Aaron, of course, exercised a prophetic role. Moses, it seems, was getting all the attention, and so they felt they needed to be more in on the recognition that Moses had been receiving we're not being held in the same level of esteem with the same level of importance as was Moses. And you can imagine the bitterness, the undercurrents of, of grumbling between Aaron and Miriam. And what with this Cushite wife of his? She has only been here 
For what? For one year? For, and she's not even one of us. And let, yet, here, there it is. She, along with Moses, is getting all the attention. The Scottish preacher Alexander White, who has written quite extensively on the characters of the Bible. In fact, he has written a six-volume work, a voluminous work, on the characters of the Bible. Here's what he said about Miriam. Quote, but for her brother's marriage, Miriam would have been the sovereign woman in all Israel for all her days. But Moses' marriage was more than Miriam could bear. Miriam had been Moses' sister and his mother and his closest companion and his most confidential friend for 40 years. Miriam had sat at the council table with Moses and Aaron and she assembled elders of Israel, and the assembled elders of Israel, what Moses and Aaron were to the one half of the people, Miriam, the sister of Moses, was to the other half. Miriam was the first famous woman in Israel who had borne the honorable and universal name of a mother in Israel. And but for Moses' marriage, Miriam would have shone beside Moses till her eye also was not dim, nor her natural strength abated. But Moses' marriage made Miriam as weak and as evil and as wicked as any wicked woman in all the camp. Her heart was full of hellfire at Moses' innocent wife and innocent children. And even at her meek and innocent brother himself, till her wild jealousy kindled her wild pride, and her wild pride, her wild insane and impious envy. And then her insane and impious envy soon led her into a fatal trespass against Moses and against God. End quote. Now, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. If you look at the account, tells us that Moses was very meek, more than all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And that statement hints at the possibility that being the way in spirit Moses was, Moses graciously and patiently bore with these undercurrents, these grumblings, these mutterings of his sister and brother Aaron toward him. God, however, would have none of it. He would have none of it. Because verse 2 shows that upon their raising this question, insinuating that Moses was amassing all the attention to himself as leader in Israel, the Bible tells us the Lord heard it. The Lord heard it. And on hearing it, he, in verse 4, summoned them along with Moses to present themselves at the tent of meeting. He says, you three, come out here to me, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And God, we are told, they are confronted Aaron and Miriam, and God made it known to Aaron and Miriam. He says, look, whenever I have a prophet, I will speak to that prophet, whether in a dream, in a vision, but not so my servant Moses. I speak to him as a man speaks to his friend. I speak to him live and direct, God was saying. And then what followed after the Lord's confrontation with Miriam? And Aaron, verses 9 and 10, swift 
severe judgment. We are told there the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous and Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. God did not take kindly to that kind of behavior, to that kind of attitude and action from Miriam. And this was a most awful judgment because, you see, being a leper meant that she had to go in isolation, away from the camp. She had to go quarantine. She had to be separated from the camp. In fact, it also meant that she could no longer, at least for that time, be a leader in the praise and worship team. That was a judgment for her. She could not participate in worship. She could not even lead the women in worship. Somebody says, my, what an awful punishment. Did God really have to punish Miriam that way? Did God really have to put her through all of that? You see, here's the point. God knew perfectly well what many a church discovers from time to time. And that is that undercurrents of resentment within a church, undercurrents of disgruntlement from even one member of the congregation can potentially spread like gangrene, creating havoc in the entire assembly. God knew that. You see, God knew that if allowed to continue, Miriam and Aaron's envy toward Moses would eventually undermine his authority, would eventually derail and destabilize the congregation, the entire congregation of Israel. What is it that breaks up many a church today? What is it that destroys many a church today? Why is it that many a church today is no longer functioning, is no longer around? Go back and you'll find that what was happening was that there were undercurrents of tension, disgruntlement, bitterness, envy, and the like, and and such sins. These things, my friend, will destroy the fellowship of an assembly. And hence, God, we see here, intervene, taking such drastic action against Miriam. But the question will be asked, why was Miriam punished so severely and not Aaron? Wasn't he in on the deal? Wasn't he very much a part of it? Was it that God was showing favoritism toward Aaron? Was it because he was a man, the feminist would say, that he got off scot-free? What's up with that? And let me suggest this. Perhaps she received such severe punishment and not Aaron. Because, you see, she was the instigator of the rebellion against Moses as suggested, as we said earlier, by the fact, verse 1 of Numbers chapter 12, that her name is mentioned first. She appears to have been the ringleader. And a second suggestion as to why Aaron was not afflicted with leprosy as she was, was that that would have disqualified him from being high priest. And at that critical time in Israel's history, God wanted for the people to always have a high priest. 
God wanted the people to have always there a man who would take care of the sins of the people, the sacrifices, and so on, and so forth. And so what happened? That's why God did not afflict him as he did Miriam. At the end of the day, here's the point. God is God. God is free to do whatever he wants. As the rest of the account records, it was through the prayer of Moses. It was through the prayer of Moses. Here's a tremendous lesson. Moses was not a bitter man. Moses, as a meek man, despite the fact that he was being hurt, despite the fact that his sister and his brother were teaming up against him, undermining him, grumbling against him, Moses, in the end, what did he do? He prayed for his sister. He begged God, as it were, not to take her life. Of course, we know verses 13 through 16, she was eventually healed of her leprosy. Very quickly, what observations can we make about Miriam from this incident? And the first thing I'd suggest to you was, is this. Miriam was evidently a woman with a very strong and forceful personality. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. There are women like that today who have very strong, forceful personality. Miriam was a woman with, with a very strong, forceful personality, so much so she could have influenced Aaron to join with her in a rebellion against Moses' leadership. And Mark, here's the point. From the very start, Aaron, it seems, was not a strong man. How do we know that? Exodus 32, you remember the golden calf incident? He allowed the people to dictate to him to lead them into idolatry. There's every indication that he was a man who seemed not to have had a mind of his own. And here was a strong woman. A woman with a forceful personality. She got him as high priest. The one who should be taking care of the sins of the people. The pastor. She got the pastor to join with her in rebellion against the man of God. I suggested in chapter 15, verses 20, 21, which we considered earlier, where she rallied the women together to worship, to praise the Lord. Leadership was evidently one of her strengths. She knew how to influence people. You remember how she rallied those women together? She knew how to influence people. And it seems that her ability to lead and influence others became, for her here in Numbers chapter 12, an occasion of weakness. Her strength, beloved, became her weakness. Here she misused what would otherwise have been used for the glory of God. She misused her influence. And what are the lessons we can draw from this incident in the life of Miriam? First of all, we learn how easily, watch this, we learn from Miriam. Consider who she was, a leader in Israel in her own right, a prophetess, a matriarch in Israel. We learn how easily it is, even for the most eminent of God's servants, of God's saints, to descend from devotion to the Lord into carnality and grievous spiritual disaster. We learn how very much possible 
It is for the most spiritual, even for the most spiritual, mature believer to become worldly in their ways and in their attitudes. Though a prophetess and worship leader, Miriam was not above spiritual failure. Let me say this. Regardless of who you are, regardless of who I am, listen, we are prone to falling, to sinning most grievously and most miserably. That was Miriam. That's you and that's me. And secondly, we learn from Miriam something of the disastrous, devastating consequence of the sin of envy. The sin of envy. Envy which is rooted in pride leads to disgruntlement, leads to disaffection with even those who are closest to us. Miriam allowed envy toward her own brother to overtake her heart, to overcome her heart, such that she was bitter, she was resentful, even toward a close family member, her own brother Moses. That's what envy did to her. The sin of envy, my friends, is ultimately, as we see from this passage, a sin against God. Because no sooner had she raised that question and Aaron raised that question, that suggests the envy they had for Moses. As soon as God, they uttered those words, the Bible says the Lord heard it. It's ultimately a sin against God. Envy. It's ultimately a sin against God's providence by which God orders that which he deems best for each and every person. When we murmur about our lot, when we murmur about our gifts, our abilities, what we have, what we do not have, we are actually sinning against God, murmuring, sinning against his providence. Are you guilty of that? I have to ask myself that question. Two, are we given to murmuring? Are we given to envying? Jealousy. Instead of focusing on what who others are, what others have, we should recognize, we should not only recognize, but rejoice in what God has given us. We should recognize and rejoice also in what God has not given us, recognizing that everything that God orders for us is the very best for us. We ought never to compare what others have with what we have. We ought never to bemoan what we do not have. You see, the moment we become envious of someone, for whatever reason, we are expressing discontent, we are expressing ingratitude with respect to the gifts and resources with which God has wisely, lovingly blessed us. And beloved, Miriam reminds us that if at heart we are envious of others, if at heart we are bitter toward others, then that will most certainly, it will most certainly disrupt our fellowship with God and expose us to his severe discipline. God does not take kindly to a bitter spirit, an envious spirit. There might be Christians, there might, I don't know. The question is, what is your relationship with someone whom you think has hurt you? And if you nurture that spirit of bitterness, if you nurture a spirit of envy, among other things that that will do, that will kill your spiritual life. It will kill your spiritual life. It will disrupt your fellowship with God. Ultimately, it brings upon you the judgment of God, severe discipline. 
And we know how much God is averse to the sin of envy because in years later, years later, by the time we get to Deuteronomy 24 verse 9, God is warning Israel. And among the things that God is warning Israel about, he says to them in Deuteronomy 24 verse 9, remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. That's how seriously God takes the sin of envy, of bitterness. And then finally, we learn from Miriam, wonderful lesson that even after sinning miserably, even after sinning grievously, the grace of God never gives up on us. The grace of God does not give up on his people even when they sin grievously and bitterly. God forgives, God restores his people to favor, he restores them to fellowship with him. The point is, just as he did on occasions when judging Israel, he could have killed Miriam, he could have killed her. Instead, what did God do? He listened to the prayer of Moses and he graciously spared her life. He caused her to be leprous, but he healed her. God is gracious. Besides, centuries later, as we learned earlier in Micah chapter 6, verse 4, he reminded wayward Israel, here's the redeeming factor with Miriam, despite her grievous sin, God, centuries later, is again addressing rebellious Israel, and he says to them in Micah 6, verse 4, which we considered earlier, how that Miriam was in there as among the leaders who delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. That was, her failure was not the last word in scripture. For God is not unrighteous to forget your love and your labor which you have shown to him. He afflicts in judgment but he is merciful in restoring. Talk about the forgiving, restoring grace of God. That's the God we present to you this morning. Those who are listening by way of Zoom might be listening later on. That's the kind of God we present in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. He's a restoring God and he stands ready to forgive you, those of you who have not saved, those of you who have rebelled against him, he by his grace can certainly do that if you would but trust him.